All right, who here likes meat? Anybody? Okay. Yeah, uh, me too. And um, uh, a few months back, maybe uh, a while back, I was meeting with our doctor and we were talking and he was talking to me about getting healthy and all those things. And he says to me, uh, Justin, it used to be you are what you eat. Not anymore. Now it's you are what your food eats. And I was like, what? I didn't, I didn't get it, right? But then he said, uh, well, you know, you are what your chicken eats. You are what your you know, cattle eats. You are what you... And he went on explaining that what, the, what you eat eats matters. And I thought, huh. So I went to the grocery store, you know, after that, and I started noticing that everything's... All the foods are actually divided that way. You know, chicken is divided by, you know, all natural, no GMOs, uh, farm raised. That's, that's the way they title it all that. And then there's the other stuff, Right. And of course, the farm-raised stuff's more expensive. Beef, same way, right? It's divided into um, grass-fed, right, or, or organic or whatever they call that. Grass-fed beef, and then there's the stuff in the long tube, you know, this mystery meat. You don't really know what's in there, but um, it's, it's in there. Well, so the grass-fed beef, right, is supposed to be this healthy stuff. It's been well-fed, and now it's a healthy meal for, for you. And I... Well, I just realized um, my whole introduction has to do with food and meat. And I don't know if that's because we're fasting. <laughs> I don't know if my stomach's telling me what to say here or I'm just being cruel to all of you. Um, I don't know. Anyway, the point I'm making is that grass-fed, uh, grass-fed meat is the best. It's been nourished. It's been grown to maturity by feasting on true grass, on, on the good stuff, right? That cow hasn't taken any shortcuts. It hasn't been pumped full of steroids or hormones or whatever to appear healthier than it is. It didn't get genetically modified. It was fueled and matured by feasting on true grass. Do you know what fuels you matters? Your source of strength, your motivation to do everything that you do, that it matters. Now, I'm not referring necessarily to what you eat. I'm really talking spiritually. What, what fuels your obedience in particular? Your kindness to others? Your generosity to the church or to the poor? What fuels your obedience to God? And this is going to be our focus today as we look to the book of Titus. So will you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Titus? What we've seen in recent weeks is that our submission to authority is a key component in living out our faith. Is that a challenge for anybody else, right? Um, submission to authority. When we went into our life groups, we were talking about different ways that we struggle to submit to authority. And I don't know why I had so much to say about that, uh, me personally, but I, I did. And uh, our group, we had some really great discussion about that. It was helpful. Um, but we've seen that submission to authority is a key component and to living out our faith. And what, what we're getting ready to dig into uh, in the coming weeks uh, is how we obey Christ as men and women and employees and citizens in our, in our country in different ways, specific obedience. But what I be, want to begin doing is to dig into the motivation for your trust and joyful submission and obedience to Jesus. And here's the truth. We joyfully submit to Jesus first because of who he is. He is God. And second, because of what he's done. He is our savior. 
We joyfully submit and obey to Jesus because he is God and he is our Savior. So just as you've gotten comfortable, would you stand with me as we honor God's word reading Titus? And then you can be seated for a few minutes. Um, But Titus chapter two is where we'll pick up today. I want to read the whole chapter, 15 verses, and our focus will be on verses 11 through 15. So Titus chapter two. But as you teach, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be, put, may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For... That's a big word there. All this stuff we're supposed to do and obey and trust and submit to, right? And then verse 11, here's here's what motivates that obedience. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray. Lord, we're looking at uh, some very practical changes that must be made in our lives as men and women. These commands in Scripture are simple, but they're not easy. So we... We want to rest in the truth that the same grace that saves us also trains us. What you demand of us is made possible because of what you've done for us and what you're doing in us. So God, please give us fresh eyes to see and really grasp the wonder of your grace today. Your grace in Jesus name we pray. Amen. And you can be seated. So in this chapter, there's a pretty clear division between verses 1 through 10 and 11 through 15. Those first 10 verses explain how um, godly older men and older women and young women and young men and 
employees and citizens, how all these people, these roles, how we um, uh, how we are supposed to live. And it gives us paints this model of mentorship. Right. Older men with older with younger men and older women with younger women. What we've seen from Titus in the weeks past is that following Jesus includes all of life. There's nothing off the table when it comes to following Christ. He wants to reshape who you are in every facet of your life. How much wine you drink. The words that you say. How self-controlled you are or argumentative you are. All of that is right here in black and white, right? And all of that's on the table and more for what Christ wants to do in your life. The gospel changes us. It makes us new people, amen? It changes us at the core. I love the scripture that Pedro read because it it reminds us that salvation isn't just a making making us better people. God actually says he wants to take out our heart our core identity, who we really are, and put in a new heart, right? It's not just he's making us better. He's making us new. Why not just, why not just keep being a jerk to your waitress, right? Why not just keep doing that? Or why not just keep yelling uncontrollably at your children? Why not just keep looking at the filth on your phone? Why not just keep cheating on your time card at work? You know, fudging a few minutes here, a few minutes there. Why not keep doing those things? Well, even if you wanted to change, how would you? How would you change? Would you just muster the strength in your own, on your own and be like, well, I'm going to be different now. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. What we know is that True transformation only happens in the gospel. You're really only truly changed in the gospel, through the gospel. True gospel transformation doesn't happen just because you start a quiet time or you come to church twice a month or fill in the blank, right? Something you decide you're going to do to be better. No, what you need is to be made new and let Christ make you better. Real gospel transformation, listen, is the work of grace. This is what verse 11 and this passage is teaching us. That in order to be the the husbands we're meant to be, the fathers we're meant to be, the the wives, the women, the mothers, the employees. In order to be the kinds of people God's calling us to be, we need His grace. The grace of the gospel. Look at Verse 11 with me, if you will. Look at it on in your copy of God's word. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people and training us. Training. The grace of God is training. Do you connect that verb with that noun? Like this is massive. And what we're seeing here is Paul is Explaining to Titus and via through Titus teaching us that true godliness is grace fed. So now you're seeing where I got the grass fed thing from the beginning, right? You're making the connection with me. Um, Okay, hope so. Grass fed beef, grace fed people, right? Okay, makes sense to me. So I'm, I'm calling this message grace fed godliness because 
It's the grace of God in Jesus Christ that really transforms us to live for him and no longer for ourselves. The grace of God. It almost doesn't even make sense. Because grace is his working and not your own. Grace is his favor that's unmerited by you. It almost doesn't even make sense. But what Paul is saying is that real grace actually transforms who you are. and makes you want to do different. It changes your desire. Godly living from verses 1 through 10 that we've read has to find its joy and motivation in the gospel. In verses 11 through 14, the gospel of grace is the grounds that fuel us, that motivate us, that spur us on out of that grace. Everything grows and is being transformed. So this is where we're going today. We're talking about grace-fed godliness, okay? I want us to focus in on verses 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. God's grace. What does God's grace do? I want to give us some things straight from this text, truths that God's grace is doing in those who believe. The first thing we see in verse 11 is this. God's grace brings salvation brings salvation for all people the salvation of jesus listen is for anyone for all people there's no there's no one beyond the reach of the grace of god you haven't sinned so badly that you can't be saved by the blood of jesus he saves us the bible says to the uttermost So at the depths of your dirt and filthiness and sin, he reaches all the way down and beyond. He saves us to the uttermost. When the scripture says all people right here, it's not just referencing all peoples all around. It's actually talking about the kinds of people, the the different kinds of sinners. And don't we see this happen in the person of Jesus? Like, who does he redeem and rescue? He calls tax collectors prostitutes, fishermen, right? Religious zealots. These are his disciples, his chosen 12. Like this, these are the people that Jesus is calling to himself. All kinds of sinners. The gospel of grace brings salvation for all people. This is good news because you're a sinner. And so am I. We are sinners. We are at one point, church, we're far from God. We, Ephesians says, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Ephesians 2 says, don't forget that. Remember that you were once far from God, brought near by His grace. We don't need to forget it because we need to be reaching out with with the grace of God to people who are far from God, right? So grace brings salvation for all people. Now, Titus is clearly teaching that grace saves you saves you and will also make you obedient to Christ. But let's be clear, salvation is not your reward for obedience. It is the reason for your obedience. It isn't your obedience that saves you. It's it's your salvation that leads you to obey. Hmm. Grace is not a license to sin. Listen, Grace is not a license to sin. It's the liberty to obey. (laughs) 
I'm free. I am free to live for Jesus. I'm no longer in bondage to who I used to be. Only by the grace of God. But grace is humbling, isn't it? It's humbling. It isn't, it isn't anything you can do. It's amazing that Paul calls on Titus to insist on such behavior, right? Insist on it. Isn't it amazing how he hinges this kind of living to grace? He says, it has nothing to do with you and your good works. Paul's saying, remember, we're called to radical obedience, not to earn our favor with God, but because in Jesus, you've already received his favor. So in his first coming, Jesus is the bringer of grace. What did he accomplish for you, Christian? Are you ready for just a powerful um, grip on who you are in Christ? This is what Jesus has accomplished for you if you're a follower of Jesus. First, Jesus purchased us. You see that in the text? Look at verse 14. It says he gave himself for us to redeem. That word means to buy back. His life, listen, Jesus' life wasn't taken from him. It was given. He gave it. Jesus said in John 10, no man takes my life. I lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. He is no victim. He came here on a mission to purchase you and me with his blood. His life was a substitute. The Bible says for us. That word for means in your place. Instead of you, he went to the cross in your place. He purchased us. God fully, fully accepts Jesus's death on your behalf. We are redeemed, bought back because the ransom payment has been made in Mark 10, 45. The Bible says the son of man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. We are redeemed to Christ, but we're redeemed from lawlessness, right? This salvation is out of who we used to be. This disobedient lifestyle where we're, we, we just push off all authority and say, I'm going to do what I want to do. I don't care what anybody says. That is what you've been redeemed from, according to the Bible. So Jesus is purifying us. He purchased us and he purifies us. To purify us means the grace of God makes you clean. I love, again, the text that we read from Ezekiel 36. Listen to it one more time. It says, God is saying, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. The promises of God, the I wills of this passage are beautiful. It's what he's doing in us. He's doing to us. He's making us clean in, in the Bible. One of the clearest pictures of unclean was that of a leper, a person who had the boils on their skin. They were Feverish, constantly sick within, but the, the marks of a leper were this odor. They couldn't get rid of this stench of their body and their skin was just disgusting. It was, it was literally rotting. But as they approached the people, you know what they had to shout out? Unclean. 
This is terrible, right? It's, it's a proclamation about themselves and a warning to the people they're around. Because they're saying, I'm unclean, don't get too close. My uncleanness will rub off on you. And if that doesn't you know, work in our world, right, of a pandemic right now. But listen to how Jesus changes everything. If you were to touch a leper, very good chance you'd walk away with leprosy. Their uncleanness spreads and takes over your cleanness. But in Jesus, everything is different. The grace of God appears in Jesus and he flips the script. The leper comes to him and in his touch, the sickness and uncleanness isn't passed to Jesus. Rather, Jesus's purity and cleanness is given to the leper. Jesus, listen, purifies all who come to him, all who come to Christ. No exclusions. You come to Jesus. You say, I'm filthy with sin and unrighteousness. He says, I've got righteousness to cover it. Give me your filth. I can handle it. Let me give you my righteousness. This is what Jesus does in the grace of the gospel. He makes you clean. It's a work of purity. Jesus purifies us. I think about uh, the process of purifying silver. When silver is purified, it's put into this chemical. It's set into this chemical that separates all the all the impurities are, are pulled away from this precious metal. They're, they're sort of boiled away, if you will, by this chemical and they float to the top. Yeah. And there's a there's a man there who just skims the top, and pulls the dross off the top. And then after this process, the silver's brought out. It's cured for a bit. It's put back in. It's, it's not a one and done kind of thing. It's an over and over and over process. And here's what you need to hear is that Jesus is still working on you like that. He's still skimming off and separating the garbage and pulling the pulling the stuff away from who we are to say, I'm making you clean. Listen to the beautiful scripture in Hebrews 10, verse 14. It says, listen to this. We have this beautiful reality of being clean ultimately and being made clean still today. These things are both true. Hebrews 10, 14 says, for by a single Offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being who are being sanctified. Do you see that truth? Jesus has perfected you. He has made you clean in the gospel of grace and you are being sanctified, being purified through the blood of Jesus. So Jesus purifies us. Jesus possesses us. Let's make no mistake. It is to make, to, to save, to redeem for himself a people, verse 14, for his own possession. Jesus possesses us. The saving work of God is to present a pure bride to himself. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul's writing and he's calling husbands to love their wives. And he says to them this, verse 25. Through 27, he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's all believers and gave himself up for her that he might 
sanctify her. Beautiful. Purify, right? Having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word so that here's the reason he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy without blemish. So you are purchased. You're purified. But why? Because you're his possession. We are his prized possession as his people, his bride. Jesus wants the purity of his bride. And we together as the body of believers are the church, the bride of Christ. I want you to notice something here. In this passage, individualism is gone. All the pronouns are all us and we and our. Because this is a collective endeavor. Jesus is saving a people. Look at verse 14. It's what it says. He's redeeming a people. This is where this whole title, this series, Life Together, has come from. Is that we're called to this journey together. And as it relates to salvation and sanctification, your sin is no longer just your sin. It affects our purity as a people, as his bride. So think about the implications of that. Your unwillingness to be purified in whatever area impacts the whole body of Christ. My lack of discipline or laziness or harshness with my wife or children is no longer a private matter. It puts a wrinkle or a blemish on the whole body, the precious bride of Jesus Christ. We're called to this life together. So Jesus possesses us. And lastly, Jesus prepares us. Look at the last little bit of this text. It says, who are zealous for good works. So instead of our own way, instead of living for ourselves, Jesus has prepared us for works to do. Good or godly living as husbands or wives or workers or whatever it may be is part of that for sure. In Ephesians 2 verse 10, we're told that we are his workmanship Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So church, listen to me. He does have work for you to do. Good work. And his grace empowers your obedience. So now we've, we've talked a lot now about who we are. Who we are in Christ. It's important we dig into who, our identity, before we get into do, right? What we're supposed to do. We are purchased. We're purified. We are beloved possessions. We are those for whom Jesus has prepared a whole new way of life, right? That's who we are. This is our identity. We must get a grip on the who before the do. But look at what else. This is the grace of God brings salvation for all people. That's what we've just talked about. Now look at verse 12, if you will. The grace of God trains us in how to live. How to live. It says we're to be a people who are renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions. So the scripture here says that negatively speaking, we must 
take off the old life in our own lives, the garbage that used to define us, old pursuits that consumed us, these things that do not resonate with the character of God should no longer resonate with our character. One of my first thoughts here is what kinds of things entertain you? What are the kinds of things that you look to for fun? Then maybe ask this question. Would Jesus enjoy this? When the Bible says worldly passions, I want you to think maybe what what pursuits, what pursuits do I have in my life? And do these pursuits match those of a person who has rejected Jesus? Is there any distinction between what I want out of life and what a lost person wants out of life? What kinds of things really make you happy is what we're asking. And would Jesus be happy with those things? The Bible says we're to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It says also we're to be living self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. I love that phrase in the present age, because what it means is there's another age coming, right? Um, It's a good reminder. This life is not the end. There is more. And this place is not our home. I, I, I long to see and be a part of a people who truly believe that this place, this world is not our home. We're being called to live like it. We are exiles. We are sojourners here. That reality calls us to live differently. It shouldn't be all about how much money we make or the house we live in or the stuff we own. It shouldn't be all about those things. It should be all about how can we live our lives building the kingdom. We cannot waste our lives with fleeting pleasures. When there's an eternity of fullness of joy and pleasure in Jesus. So Paul says live disciplined, live self-controlled, live Under control, not loose, not unbridled. Live upright, he says. Upright. What does that mean? Well, it indicates at least that there is an up and a right way to live. This actually has to be said. There is an up and a down. So many today think morality is subjective. It's not. There is an up and a right and there's a down and a wrong. How do you know the difference? I remember my my first time scuba diving. I got a little bit disoriented. I went a little deep. I got disoriented and I didn't know. I literally could. I was just I was a little, I don't know, inebriated, I guess. I don't know what what that is. But I remember being disoriented, not knowing which way is up. And I remember the guy saying, if you if you lose your way, blow some bubbles. And so I'm like, oh, that's up. Okay, go up. So in life, how do you know which way is up? How do you know what is upright? The only way is to trust in the word of God, the character and the word of God. He's given us what's up and what's right. And we don't get to rewrite it. We just trust it and believe. So we look to the word of God as our standard for living. God sets the standard and we submit to his authority. 
Godly living means by grace we start thinking like Jesus. We start talking like Jesus, um, responding like Jesus, loving like Jesus. Grace appeared in the person of Jesus and he perfectly modeled for us. He is the, the bubbles, if you will. He's the standard of which way is up. So what does grace do? It, it say bringing salvation for all people, it, training us in how to live. And then it points our hearts to hope, pointing us to hope. Look at what the what the Bible says here in verse 13. It says we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to give you three words to hold on to. It starts with this word waiting Waiting with eager expectancy. That's what's in my mind here in this waiting. It's not passive, it's active. Um, what, what really gets you excited? What's something that you, you would say, man, I just can't wait, right? I got some friends in the house that are planning a, a cruise to Alaska. And uh, they were telling me about their cruise to Alaska. Maybe um, that's you or something like that is on the horizon for you. And you, you find yourself scrolling through pictures of glaciers or snow caps or beautiful lakes or the, the wildlife of Alaska. And you're looking at, you know, where your plane's going to land and how all the scenery you're going to see. And your friends are starting to get a little tired of hearing about your cruise to Alaska. You know, um, I'm teasing you guys in the room. <laughs> um, but you've, you've been looking at, you know, what ports you're going to be in and. What things you're going to see and you would say, Man, I just can't wait. We've already kind of started packing this thing six months away, but we got suitcases ready. You know, we're, I just can't wait. You're telling your friends about the deal you got on like cheapdeals.com and you're like, you need to go. This is going to be great. You are. This is what we're talking about. You are eagerly waiting, eagerly waiting. Church, how much more should we be eagerly waiting and for the glorious appearing of our God and Savior? Look at, look at Hebrews 9, verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are what, church? Eagerly waiting for Him. Eagerly waiting for Him. So this is what he means by waiting and then looking, looking for his appearing. Paul's talking about his second coming here, the second coming of Christ. Titus 2.11 says in his first appearing, Jesus brings salvation. But in that coming, Jesus came in grace. Did you notice that he brings grace? His deity was masked in humanity. He came in humility. How was Jesus born? He was born to a, a young couple that had been run out of town and born in a stable to a teenage girl and a carpenter father. He lived a homeless life, was hated by the popular and the rulers. He suffered at the hands of those he came to save. And he died the shameful death, the same kind of death a criminal would die. He has appeared to us in grace to redeem us in salvation. Oh, but listen, in his second coming, he will come in glory 
There will be no mistaking him as the one true God. He will leave no doubt to his true glory and it will not be veiled. He rode in on a young donkey when he came to save as our suffering savior. But he will part the clouds on a white horse as our conquering king. Every eye will see and every mind will know he will be seen for who he is. For the unbelieving world, it will be the most terrifying and devastating moment ever. Because they will see with their eyes what their hearts have refused to believe. And it will be too late. But for believers, those who have eagerly waited for him, it will be the most glorious fulfillment of a long-awaited promise. So we're looking for that day and lastly, hoping in our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The text is super clear here. Our hope is blessed. It's a blessed hope, a happy hope. Why? Because God has opened our eyes to see, to behold this Jesus, that he is the God man. What does it say? What does Paul say here? He's our God and our Savior. There's some. Several places in the New Testament that it makes an explicit claim about Jesus' deity. This is one of them. Listen, don't put your hope in any man or any woman. Why? They'll let you down, right? We put our hope in the God-man, Jesus Christ, who will never fail. The grace of God, lastly, I want to finish here. And this is really practical, so key in for a minute. The grace of God, what does it do? It demands our submission to authority. It demands we submit to authority. Look at verse 15. I know we talked about this last week, but I just, it's here in our text again. Verse 15, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Paul's been commissioned by Jesus, who has all authority, to make disciples and plant churches. Paul leaves Titus in Crete with special instructions on how to strengthen these churches and call them to godly living. And here's what Paul says to Titus. Declare these things. Exhort, like positively, encourage with truth and rebuke. Speak against. Silence opposition. Tell people when they're wrong. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. So many think God's ways are suggestions, just helpful tips, but they're not. The Lord prescribes for his people how he expects us to live as men and women in our roles in the world. He expects our obedience. And the Lord says, here's my standard. This is what I expect. Here's what I've done in you. and I'm still doing for you. Now I'm giving you one another. Did you, did you notice this? The grace of God comes to us in the one another's. God didn't come miraculously down into Crete and he didn't come again in person and say, listen, here's what I want you to do. No, he, he sent Paul, who sent Titus, who's now raising up others to exhort and rebuke. It's through the through the people. And practically, that's how the grace of Jesus often changes us through the tough and loving words of brothers and sisters in Christ. So Ephesians 4.15 says it this way. Speaking the truth in love. 
We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Maturity and growth come through many times through hearing and receiving truth from those around you who love you as they exhort and rebuke you. Now, when you know who you are, who you are in Christ and how he's training you to live, you're more willing and able to receive coaching from one another. Now we get real down to earth, right? This is where it matters. Are we as a people willing, submitted to one another well enough to hear hard truth from each other? To be both exhorted and rebuked for our behavior when it's out of line. To hear somebody say to you, hey, 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 what what you're doing doesn't reflect the gospel. It's not honoring to Jesus. How well would you take that? How well would you receive it? Church, this is the people we're called to be. The kind of people who are serious about our maturity and about his mission. And we don't get one without the other. So my hope is that uh, in this fellowship in the coming weeks, in our, in our church, there would be godly older women who would begin to pull some young women along under their wing and say, look, I don't know it all, but I think I can help you. I think I could help you in a few areas. Would you want to just hang with me? Let's do some do life together. Let's talk through struggles together. Let's push each other with the gospel. And I'm hoping that there'll be some men. We need this. Just a quick aside. There's an epidemic of a lack of manliness. Would you agree? Yes. I wish I could just spend a long time calling for men to be men. But as we look at this text, it's much deeper than just grunting and, you know, holding a gun or whatever. Like that's not let's let's get past the stereotypical manhood. I mean, there's some of that that we probably need to get back to truthfully. But it's not just grunting and growing beards. That's not what he's dealing with here. When he talks about men and he's talking about it is sound doctrine. We need some men who know the truth, love the truth, hold the truth and hold other people to the truth. Men, rise up in this place. Let's be the men we're called to be for the sake of our king. I'm getting off on a tangent. This is where we're going, church. In the next few weeks, we're digging into chapter two. What has he called us to as men and as women? And I promise you, we're going to be stepping on each other's toes here. Because our world has taught us differently. Our world is telling you all kinds of things about manhood and womanhood. And their lies. We trust the word of God and we will preach faithfully the word of God with no apology because he is our king. Amen. Yeah. Right. I want to invite you today just to, uh, to pray with me as we worship. If you need to pray, if you need to spend time with the Lord. Maybe today as we talk through salvation, as we talk through what uh, the Lord does in the life of a believer, maybe you're thinking, I'm not a Christian. I don't know Jesus. He's never purchased me. He's never possessed me. I don't really know, I don't really know what it means to be possessed by Jesus. Um, he's never purified me. I want to I talk with you. Like we, we would love to tell you how 
to be saved by the gospel of Jesus. That He will save you no matter who you are or what you've done. There's no one too far. And maybe you're here and you've been saved, but there's some work left to be done. I want to tell you, yield your life to Christ in all things. Give it all to Him. Let's pray.